All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. If you've hit the index of your Bible, you've gone too far. Back up. Revelation chapter 2. This morning we'll look at the second of seven churches that are addressed in the book of Revelation. The church of Smyrna. The persecuted church. And let's begin by reading, beginning in verse 8. And the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which are about, you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that, it may, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." And he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. There's estimated 2.3 billion Christians in the world today. Many ministries that track the number of persecuted Christians out of that number estimate that on a yearly basis, six, I'm sorry, three million and six hundred thousand. I'm sorry, 360 million, 360 million Christians are persecuted per year. In 2022 alone, 5,621 were killed solely for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this may surprise us because here in the United States of America, we do not contend with such physical persecution. But it certainly is something that was promised to those who follow Jesus Christ. For Jesus himself told us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus also told us very clearly in John fifteen eighteen through 20, For if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I have chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they had kept my word, they would have, will keep yours also. Paul the Apostle all knew, knew all too well that persecution was part of the Christian life. And stated this to Timothy, his young protege, when he said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, 
and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Let us remember 360 million Christians a year around the world are suffering persecution. 5,621 died for their faith in 2022 alone. When we read about persecution in the Bible, we often make the mistake of projecting backwards, thinking that physical persecution was only an occurrence of the past. That couldn't be farther from the truth. Just in the last half of 2022, we read of an article of a man in India who was an evangelist who was persecuted for his faith. He was then taken, beaten, and lit on fire to be burned alive. Oh, and by the way, it was his own family who lit the fire. In November of 22, we heard about a 16-year-old boy who was arrested in 2017 for his Christian faith. He was falsely accused of blaspheming Muhammad in Pakistan. And they held him in prison ever since until he turned 21. And in November of 2022, Shazad Masha was sentenced to execution by hanging. 16 years old, arrested for his Christian faith. If you haven't, may I encourage you, as an American Christian, to regain the perspective of persecution by reading the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Also, may I encourage you to look at websites, for example, such as Voice of the Martyrs, to remind us that our brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering and dying for their faith each and every day. In India, in China, and in other places around the world, some you may not even expect to be places where Christians would be persecuted. In fact, just in the last 20 years, in the nation of Iraq, 20 years ago, it was estimated that there was 1.4 million Christians in Iraq. Today, there are less than 250,000. Persecution is a reality. The question then begs to be asked, will we ever see physical persecution here in the United States of America? Now, what you may be surprised to learn is that physical persecution just doesn't happen overnight. There is a historical progression that takes place, a five-step progression that we see unfolding before our own eyes here in the United States of America, and we must be aware of its existence here in our nation. Remember what Jesus said, they hate you because they first hated me. Remember what Paul said, all who desire to live godly will, not may, but will suffer persecution. Is it possible that we are not living as Christ has called us to live? And it is for this reason that we are not physically persecuted. Is it possible that we have become indifferent to many of the sins that are destroying our nation? Are we going along simply to get along as Christians? 
Or are we willing to stand on the foundation of the Word of God and say, enough is enough? There is so much confusion in the world today. There's so much deceit in the world today. We don't know who to believe or what to believe. And whenever a person in authority opens their mouth, we automatically assume that they're lying to us. This is where we have come to quickly in the last three years. The church of Smyrna was in a beautiful city. Even though the word Smyrna means bitter, it's where myrrh was manufactured. But the church in Smyrna wasn't faring so well in comparison to Ephesus and to others. And Jesus addresses them here in these four short verses to encourage them. And as we look at this together, we will discover that the persecution that we see today began at the very beginning. And here in 95 AD, we see that Smyrna, which is still a city today, is Izmir, was a home where Christians were being persecuted for their faith. It was a Roman city at this time, governed by Roman law. Most scholars believe that the church was planted as an outreach of the church of Ephesus. And notice that it's incredible how Jesus points and identifies himself as the one who is the first and the last who was dead and who came to life. The Christian faith is really the endeavors of Jesus to destroy the last enemy. Well, what is the last enemy for God to destroy? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the last enemy is death itself. And he assured his disciples, he assured the apostles, that they should not fear death. For do not fear what man can do to the body, but what God can do to the soul. And in that assurance, he released them from self-preservation. Meaning they didn't hold back when they believed that it would be costly to their own lives. They didn't withdraw and retreat, but rather they continued moving forward, knowing that if they were physically persecuted, they were only continuing in the sufferings of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul the Apostle made this abundantly clear through his letters that he saw it as a joy and an honor to continue in the sufferings of our Lord. When we look at the term first and last, last week we saw it, or I should say two weeks ago, we saw it from John's point of view when he used it in the idea of the lagos. But let us also know and understand that the term first and last also is found in Isaiah and refers to God. And this is Jesus identifying himself as God here in the book of Revelation. In Isaiah 41.4, speaking of God who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, he says, I am the first and with the last I am he. In Isaiah 44, 6, again we read, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no other God. 
And when he talks about the idea of the first and the last, one who is dead, or the term firstborn from the dead, it is a reference to conquering the grave. When you have a chance, I encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 13 when Paul's defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by doing so, he is reminding us that death has been conquered in and through Christ. This is why Jesus said, though you may die, you shall live. But as we see here, the church of Smyrna was going through a very difficult time. And in verse 9, God begins to identify not only those things that they are doing, but the difficulties that they are experiencing. Verse 9. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blaspheme of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. It was apparent that the church of Smyrna didn't believe that they were having much of an impact on their society, being within the persecuted state in which they were. And yet Jesus begins by saying, I know your works. I know what you're doing. I know what you're up to. I know what you are accomplishing. From his perspective, he saw it completely different from their perspective. But he immediately not only identifies their works, not only does he show them that their works have drawn his attention, And the term works there is their deeds. It's in a positive light. But he immediately shares with them that he knows what they are going through. For the tribulation that they are experiencing. Now we know that in this world we shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer for I have overcome the world, the Lord says. The Bible is clear that we as Christians should not look for a soft and easy life. Unfortunately, I feel that too many American Christians have come to Jesus solely for that purpose. For one reason or another, they have set an expectation upon the Lord that He is simply there to help them fulfill all of their needs and wants. That He is there to make all of their dreams come true. To help them to assist them when they are in need. And yet the Christian faith described and mentioned in the Bible is much different. The Christian faith in the Bible clearly demonstrates and shows us that we are going to be the remnant, that we are going to be the minority, and that we will be hated and persecuted for our faith. Why? Because just as Jesus told us, They love the darkness rather than the light. And so they hated him, so they will hate us. As we live within the righteousness of Christ, our demonstration of that righteousness will be offensive to some. Now, I believe that there is a difference when our righteousness is offensive or when we are offensive. God is not calling us to be offensive. But if the world finds our righteousness in Christ offensive, so be it. I will not apologize for that. 
And as we continue on, we find that we are in antagonism with the world in a greater level than I have ever seen before in my life. And we are arguing over things that should be absolutely evident, correct? Who is a boy? Who is a girl? My wife was showing me a video this week of the uh, famous Mr. Rogers himself. And in that little song that he was singing, he was reminding the boys and girls, if you're born a boy, you're always a boy and you will become a man. If you're born a girl, you will always be a girl and you will become a woman. Prophet Mr. Rogers, huh? I wonder if the mailman's going to get in on it. So true. Such confusion. Such wickedness. Such evil in our world today. So our righteousness will become offensive. When we believe in a monogamous relationship between a husband and a wife, one man, biological man, one woman, biological woman. I have to phrase that. I have to say that now. Okay? How is it possible that our society has come to the point where we believe that gender is fluid And each and every day, we can decide who we are, gender-wise. Really? How did that happen? I think it was my daughter who showed me a video of a young man who believed, as he now saw himself as a woman, was feeling PMS. Really? It's just, it's crazy, guys. It's lunacy, isn't it? It's just lunacy. And and I could say more, and I would just get in more trouble. I'd feel good about it, but I would just get in more trouble. So we are going to continue to become more offensive to the world as the world continues to go in this direction. It's unavoidable, unless we compromise with the world. Unless we become like the world in hopes to reach the world only to discover then we have become absolutely impotent in our evangelistic endeavors. Because no one in the world wants to be just like themselves in the world. They want to be different if they're going to truly be saved. So as we continue here, we find that the tribulation that they were experiencing was physical persecution. And he lists poverty here. Because in the Roman world, we have to understand the Roman culture here a little bit. This is important. Rome had to allow a religious system to to continue after conquering that nation. What Rome discovered was, at first, when they began conquering the known world and succeeding the Grecian Empire, they tried to bring all of their subjects under the the Roman gods, and that didn't work very well. So they discovered that one of the ways or means by which they could retain cohesiveness in their empire was to allow for the established religious faith within that nation, especially if that nation's identity is woven in to their faith, to continue and to exist as long as there was an insurrection and rebellion. And we see that through the Gospels, don't we? Judaism was allowed until 
zealots became insurrectionists and tried to overthrow the Roman oppression. Now, though Judaism was accepted, and by this time, 95 AD, scholars and historians tell us that the, there was a very cozy relationship between the Jewish leadership and the Roman Empire. But when Christianity came out of Judaism and the Jews were opposed to it, so were the Romans. And because Christians were unwilling to kneel before the deity of Caesar, they were immediately identified, singled out, and persecuted. And that persecution began with the loss of their personal wealth. The persecution began with the loss of their personal wealth. It's interesting that when you look through history, you discover that so often, so often a conquering uh, army will use monetary means of manipulation to move the conquered nation in the direction that they want to go, often replacing the currency of that nation. We saw that in World War II. It was part of the way the Germans tried to subdue Europe and make it one under the Reich. That's what Rome tried to do. By issuing coins with the Caesar on it as a deity, or the son of Caesar in this case, who had died, Domitian's son died in 89 AD, I believe it was, and put on the back of the coin a child sitting on the world with uh, seven stars around him. Jesus uses that parallel in towards the church of Ephesus. So the first thing they lost was their, 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 their personal wealth. Their personal wealth. Now, it's gone one step farther. When that didn't work, they resorted to physical persecution. And you can see where this is going. Now, from their vantage point, notice what Jesus says to them. He recognizes their tribulation. He recognizes their worldly poverty. But what does he say to them? Though you are in poverty, he's acknowledging that. He says, in my eyes, you are rich. Why? Because suffering the persecution in the manner in which they were, were storing up for themselves treasures in heaven. And to the Lord, they were rich in his eyes for denying themselves, taking up the cross and following after him. They laid it all down, including their own physical life in many cases. But what he is identifying and assuring them of is the fact that though you may be in poverty here in this world, in my kingdom, you are rich. Just the opposite of Laodicea, which we'll find. They were rich, but in the Lord's eyes, they were poor. Where are your treasures? Many of us worked our whole lives to obtain savings accounts and retirement packages and so forth. But how's your portfolio in heaven? How's your 401k in heaven? How's your IRA in heaven? Because this is what truly matters to God. Not that it's wrong to prepare for the future, not at all. I'm not saying that. 
But how much attention do we pay to these things and neglect our eternity? Are we so busy accumulating wealth here and now? Are we so busy here and now trying to maintain a quality of living that we neglect our work for the Lord? That's only a question that you can answer. Are you rich in the sight of the Lord or are you poor in the sight of the Lord? Only you can determine that. And like Jesus, he goes on to say that he also identifies their persecutors. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. It appears that the Jewish people, along with the Romans, were persecuting the new-founded Christians. We know that Paul's whole life as a Pharisee and Sadducee, uh, Pharisee per se, uh, he went and persecuted Christians trying to stop that which God was doing until we come to Acts chapter 9 when Paul is knocked off of his horse by the Lord himself and he has asked that direct question, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And of course, it was none other than Jesus who he was persecuting. In verse 10, he says, Do not fear any of those things which are, you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. It's going to get worse. Being thrown into prison in the way that it is structured in the Greek could mean simple imprisonment. It could mean imprisonment with torture, imprisonment with torture and execution. It is interesting that he acknowledges that they are to be faithful to the end. And he will give them the crown of life. He says it will continue for 10 days, and many have speculated what that 10 days represents. I think the most plausible answer to that is that it represents a limited amount of time. A limited amount of time. Their suffering is either going to end by them being released physically, or their suffering is going to be ended by their release spiritually and joined with the Lord in heaven. But he tells them it's going to get worse. There has been a lot of study done concerning what is known as the progression of persecution, the progression of persecution. Physical persecution doesn't emerge acutely. It doesn't just happen. There are stages that work its its way up to physical persecution. As Jesus told his, his followers here, the persecution is going to escalate. It's going to get worse. And may I be honest with you, is he speaking to us today? When we say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit 
has to say to the churches. The stages of persecution have been identified through various Christian organizations throughout church history. And the first stage of persecution manifests itself by the stereotyping the targeted group. To stereotype means to repeat without variation, to take a quality or observation of a limited number and generalize it to describe the whole group, meaning pick out the worst and characterize the whole group by it. It involves a simplified and standardized concept or view of the group based on the observation of a limited sample size. So, the persecution begins by the mainstream media portraying Christianity as what? The most favored people in the nation. What was that, Jeff? That's right. How many words have been you know, launched at us? Homophobe, transphobe, you know, microphobe. No. How many various, various different words have been thrown at us? We've been called racist. Even though Christianity has played a large role in the abolishment of slavery around the world, but apparently we have forgotten that. And so we are targeted by these names and the continual bombardment of the population conditioned then to believe Christians are bad, bad, bad people. Has that happened in the United States of America? How about the second stage? Vilifying the targeted group for alleged crimes or misconduct. As the stereotyping grew in intensity... Christians who did not toe the line in the cultural revolution were described as close-minded, harmful to human dignity and freedom, intolerant, hateful, bigoted, unfair, homophobic, reactionary, and just plain mean people, and basically bad for the society." We apparently are against democracy, right? Has that happened in the United States of America? Stage two. Stage three. Marginalizing the targeted group's role in society. Having established the false premise that the church and the faith are very bad and even harmful to human dignity and freedom, the critics proceed into the next stage to relegate the role of the church uh, to the margins of society, meaning taking us out of every public impact and discussion. You know, it's incredible to me how churches were relied on in this nation in its founding, the first 150 years, and then the last 80-some years, the church's role has become marginalized. Oh, we don't want the church involved in anything. Feeding the poor, nope. Helping the sick, nope. You know, setting a standard for Judeo-Christian morality, nope. We'll do that. We don't want them anywhere. 
in the social progress, in the social progression, minimizing the social impact upon the society. Has that happened in the United States of America? It sure has. Number four, we are already at four out of the five. Number four is criminalizing the targeted group or its works, meaning that we are wrong. How many times has Christianity been singled out? Initially, we, they couldn't do it legally, so social media did it for them. Censoring Christian opinion, Christian perspective, Christian theology. Everybody else could say whatever they wanted, but it was Christians. And now it looks like they want to criminalize certain actions of Christianity. We are truly emerging into stage four. And in stage four sets the foundation as the three previous to the fifth and final, persecuting the targeted group outright. If current trends continue, this author writes, Christians, especially religious leaders, may not be far from facing heavy fines and or incarceration or physical persecution and possible execution. Five stages of persecution. We are truly entering into the fourth stage already. It is a reality that I think we need to be aware of. Now, my suggestion to you is that we don't go down lightly. That we come out swinging politically. Praying for our officials, voting our Christian conscience and for Judeo-Christian values speaking our minds publicly, glorifying God in all that we do in love, but standing up for the next generation as generations before us stood up for us. This is our contest. This is our contending. This is our moment. What will we do at this moment? Will we fear the persecution or will we stand up like our brothers and sisters in India, our brothers and sisters in Pakistan, our brothers and sisters in China and say enough is enough? And as we see, Jesus encourages them here at the end, be faithful until death. Run the race to win, and I will give you the crown of life. In verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The second death is a term that will be defined for us in Revelation chapter 20. It is the time when which the, each and every person, those who have died and those who have lived through the tribulation period, will stand before Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment. The books will be open and anyone not found in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. It says it that clearly. Paul earlier gave us reference to this moment when he said that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Warren Worsby wrote about the crown of life and he stated, 
The crown of life is the winner's crown awarded to the, at the annual athletic games. Smyrna was a key participant in the games. So this promise would have especially been meaningful to the believers there. The Lord reinforced the promise to, given by James in James 1-2 and assured his people that there was nothing to fear. For James 1-12 tells us, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when it has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The Greek word in the New Testament for tempted and tested is exactly the same. The context gives us the definition. Let me simply put it to you this way, if I may. Satan tempts us to draw us away from God. Okay? Satan tempts us to draw us away from God. However, the Lord will allow us testings, not to draw us away from God, from Him, but these testings allow us to conform into His image. The trials that He allows for in our lives bring us into the image of Christ. The testing that these saints were going to go through God was going to produce in them an eternal weight of glory. As Paul said, For I see these temporal afflictions as just as they are. I'm paraphrasing. But I continue on for the eternal weight of glory that they produce within me. That's what the writer was saying to the church in Smyrna. Remain faithful. The second death has no effect on those who find their life in Jesus Christ. For the believer, when they die, immediately goes to heaven. But we know that one day we will stand what is before what is known the Bema Seat of Christ, found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's at that moment that our hearts are analyzed by our Lord and the motives of our hearts are challenged. And those things that we've done with the right motives will be as precious uh, jewels and precious metals. But those things that we've done for selfish motivation, the Bible says, is like wood and hay and stubble, and these things shall be burnt up. We shall receive no reward for them. Our salvation is not on the line. That is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But our reward for heaven is established at the Bema Seat of Christ for all eternity. It is interesting to me that after John wrote this, We know that he did once again enter into the Roman Empire and he continued on but then died shortly after that. As one wrote, Warren Wiersbe again, he said this, It costs to be a dedicated Christian. In some places more than others. As end time pressures increase, persecution will also increase. And God's people need to be ready. The world may call, on a, call us poor Christians, but in the sight of God, we are rich. little historical note for you. Some believe that when this letter was being read, now written in 95 AD, then hit the church in Smyrna after that, one of the listeners of this letter and of course the entire book of Revelation, 
was a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a student, a disciple, if you will, in a loose sense, to John, the Apostle John. John taught Polycarp directly, history tells us. At the end of Polycarp's life, for he was known as the Bishop of Smyrna, at the end of Polycarp's life, when he was being challenged by his persecutors, they believed that he was... uh, executed for his faith. But when at his trial, he was commanded to curse Christ, Polycarp stated before all of them that he had served the Lord for 86 years and had received only good from him. How could he forswear his king now? And Polycarp went to his death, faithful until the end. I'd like to close by reading out of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. Please turn there in your Bibles with me. 1 Peter chapter 4. Starting in verse 12. I'd like to leave you with these words from the Apostle Peter himself to encourage us at this time. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, he writes, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And their part, he is, on their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, What will the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, he writes, if if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let all those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. 